I wonder if any of you are like me and you have particular things that you love coming back to again and again. So maybe you're a keen reader and you have a particular favourite book and you love reading it. Maybe a particular time of the year you get that book out and you know it really well and you know what happens. But there's always something comforting about reading it and then always something new, a new little detail that you might uh, read the next time you, uh, you read it. We've all got a favourite film. Maybe you love coming back to a particular film again and again. And you can quote every line, and you know exactly what happens in that film. But again, there's always something that you, maybe you spot something new, or there's a new detail in it that you didn't see it the last time you watched it. But it's really comforting to watch that thing again and again. For me, the thing I love coming back to again and again is a place. So some of you might have heard of West Wittering, which is on the south coast. I've actually got a little picture of it just to distract you. Um, I've been going to West Wittering with my family for 15 years. Uh, we absolutely love it there. I think sometimes we go once a year, sometimes we've been twice a year, which is amazing. Um, but there's something so familiar, something so comforting about going a place that is so well known. And yet, whenever I'm there, there's always something new. There's always something fresh to discover. Well, the same is true for Bible passages. The Word of God is full of inspiring and incredible writing, but I'm sure, like me, you have favourite passages or favourite books that you love to come back to again and again. And even though you know it really well, there's new revelation there, because, of course, the Word of God is living and active, and he speaks to us today. Well, today I want to look at one of my favourite books, and it's the book of Ruth. I know the book of Ruth inside out. I come back to it again and again, but I always discover something new when I read it. And I've actually spoken on the book of Ruth here before, but actually today I want to bring something completely different uh, as the Lord has been speaking to me as I've been reading it recently. I want to start by giving you some context for today's talk so you kind of know where I'm coming from. And I'm going to be quite honest in this moment. Um, this year I've been dealing with really debilitating anxiety. And I'm talking about physically overwhelming, mentally all-consuming, can't-get-out-of-bed-to-face-the-day type anxiety. The past, as I have looked back, has felt really painful, and the future has looked very uncertain. And I've been to some really hard places as I've been on this journey of healing. Thankfully, I can now see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it has been really tough. And I was reading the book of Ruth again, and the Lord was speaking to me through these familiar passages. And as I was reading it, I was texted and asked if I would come and speak at church. And I immediately knew that I needed to share the things that the Lord had been speaking to me about. I hope and I pray that there are words of encouragement for people here today. Those of us who, like me, need to be reminded of the promises of God. So let's turn to the book of Ruth. If you've got your Bible, then do get it out. Lots of the passages are going to come up on the screen. The book of Ruth is this tiny little book. It's tucked away in the Old Testament in an actually quite a tricky section of the Bible between Judges and Samuel. It's a bit of a blink and you'll miss it book, but it's a beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness. Now, obviously, I don't have time to read the whole thing, so I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to do a bit of storytelling, a bit of paraphrasing to kind of catch us up, um, and I hope you'll come with me as I do that. So the book of Ruth starts with Naomi, and she's married to Elimelech. And they have moved from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. In Moab, they have two sons, and the two sons are married, one to a lady called Orpah and the other to a lady called Ruth. But then we read that devastation hits. We read that Naomi, Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons also die. So straight away, very early on, we're met with this scene of complete devastation, utter loss overwhelming grief. 
But also we know that these women are now in a desperate situation. Women in those days had no standing without a male relative. So they are on the brink. Life for them is now about survival. Naomi decides that she's going to move back to Bethlehem, where she's from, but she urges her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab in the hope that they might be able to remarry. Orpah agrees and turns back, but Ruth refuses to leave. She makes a vow that she will stay with Naomi and come back to Bethlehem with her. So here we have these two women, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law bound together. Then we get to chapter two. And in chapter two, we find Naomi and Ruth are living in Bethlehem. And they agree that Ruth is gonna go out and glean in a field. Now, gleaning in those days was like the social security of the day. Because of the speed that the harvesters worked, they would often leave behind large amounts of the crop. And so gleaners would follow behind after the harvesters, gathering up the leftover crop, and then this would become their property. And that was a requirement in Jewish law. So we read that Ruth goes off to glean in a local field. And we know from later verses that she works hard. It's hot and it's dirty work. I want to pause and reflect on Ruth here in this moment. Here she is in a foreign land and a different culture. Her husband has died and it's unlikely she will remarry and she's living with her mother-in-law. She has given up so much. And here she is now gleaning in a field. I imagine it was hot and dirty and tiring. And I wonder if at any point Ruth thought, what am I doing here? How did I end up in this situation? I'm sure this wasn't meant to be the plan. And I know that those are questions that I've all asked the Lord. How did I end up here? But then comes the most amazing verses in chapter two. They're really subtle, but they're absolutely brilliant. So we're gonna read from chapter two, starting at verse one. As I say, most of it will come up on the screen. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. I'm just gonna paraphrase again for a second. Boaz comes to the field, he sees Ruth in his field, he asks his workers who she is and they, they explain who she is and then they have a conversation. So we pick up in verse eight. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz continues to show Ruth favor, and in verse 19, Ruth goes back to Naomi, and she tells her that she's been working in this field belonging to Boaz, and that he's shown her great kindness. And Naomi says in verse 20, the Lord bless him, 
Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now the word guardian redeemer here is a Hebrew word and it's a legal term. And a guardian redeemer is a member of the family who is able to redeem a relative who's in serious difficulty. So Boaz is the rescue plan. Boaz is the one who can save the day. But I love this almost throwaway line in chapter two, verse three. It just says, as it turned out. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. The New Living Translation says, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. I love how simple but powerful that line is. Oh yeah, as it turned out. Oh yeah, it just so happened. I've checked this verse in so many translations and they all have this similar sense of a throwaway line, this oh yeah, it just happened. But actually those four little words bring me such comfort and joy when I read them. To me, they're actually four of my favorite words in the whole of the Bible. Because of course we know that it didn't just turn out. It wasn't by luck that she happened to go into that particular field. It wasn't chance that out of all the fields in Bethlehem, she chose that particular one. It wasn't because she was giving out good vibes that day that she happened to go to the field of Boaz. But of course, it was the work of a God who plans, the work of a God who sees and creates and moves, a God who is always at work. In Psalm 139, the psalmist reminds us, every day I live is ordained by you. And in Proverbs 16 tells us, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So I ask you, what are your as it turns out moments? What are those moments where you look back now and you know that the Lord was absolutely working in that situation? Often we can't see it until we look back. Most of the time, it's in retrospect we see this. But I ask you, what are those moments in your life when you know the Lord's hand was totally in those circumstances? I'll tell you some of mine. This is my kind of most miraculous moment, so I'm going to start strong. I was fed up of being single in my 30s, late 30s, and so I decided to do the one thing that I had resisted the whole time, and I decided to sign up for online dating, which seems ridiculous now because it's the way that loads of people meet their partners, but anyway, I've been resistant, and I decided to do it. As it turned out, the only person I messaged and the only person I went on a date with was Stephen396. And Stephen396 was very nice. It turned out he was going to become my soulmate, and we've been married for four years. There he is. <laughs> Did it just turn out? Was it luck that that happened? Was it because I was giving out particularly good vibes on the day that I clicked on his photo? Or was it actually the work of a God who was directing the events the whole time? Here's another one. We needed to move house, and we looked around one that we absolutely loved. It was the perfect location, it was near our friends, it was a great layout, but we missed out on it. Somebody else got there first, and we were gutted. We kept talking about that house. And a few weeks later, I was flicking through Rightmove in a bad mood, that we were never going to find anywhere to live, and I was never going to find a house that good. 
when the house literally adjoined the one that we loved became available. Literally the house next door. It was in better condition. It was a nicer house. It was a great price. We looked around it the next day and we moved in a few weeks later. Did it just turn out? Was it complete luck? Or was the Lord, who is always at work, beautifully orchestrating the best plan for us? How about this one? A few years ago, I took a teaching job in a school on a slightly spur-of-the-moment decision, and within a couple of weeks of being there, I suddenly realized that I'd made a mistake. It wasn't the school for me. I was really unhappy there. I thought that moving to that school was a big mistake. But as it turned out, The Lord used it as a catalyst for change. And I ended up accepting a role and actually a slightly different career path for a season that I would never have accepted, I would never have even considered if I hadn't have been so unhappy in that school. Did it just turn out? Was it luck? Or did the Lord work everything together for my good? So what are your, as it turns out, moments? We know that the Lord is always working for our good. It tells us that in Romans 8. But here's the challenge, and this is what the Lord has been speaking to me about in this recent season. Do we trust the Lord for more as it turns out moments? Do we trust? Trust is easier said than done. In the midst of the struggle, do we trust that God is still at work? When it's hard going, do we trust that God has a plan? When we are consumed by anxiety, consumed by worry, when the what if is deafening, when we feel like Ruth scrabbling around in the corn, do we trust him for more as it turns out moments? I've just told you all of mine, and yet there's been a real doubt in my mind recently. Do I trust him that he will do it again? Do I trust that he will make a way? The Lord has so many good plans waiting for us. Some of them we won't see until we look back, but he encourages us to trust and believe that he is faithful. He's always at work behind the scenes, especially when we can't see it, when it feels dark and confusing, when we can't see a way ahead. Trust and believe that the Lord is always at work, that his love and compassion never fails, and that he will never let us down. We get to chapter three of Ruth, and the story progresses. So we read that Ruth approaches Boaz with an indication that she would like to marry him. She does this by lying at his feet one night. That was the custom at the time. I'm really glad that that's not a current custom, because I hate feet. Anyone else with me? Anyway, Boaz agrees, and he agrees that he's going to marry her. But in true dramatic style, there's another guardian redeemer in the town who's also eligible to marry Ruth. So they have to wait for him to refuse. He doesn't want to marry her. And so Boaz and Ruth are free to marry. Boaz and Ruth marry. And soon Ruth gives birth to a son. And his name is Obed. Now Obed is significant because Obed had a son called Jesse. And Jesse had a son called David who became king. And from the family line of David came Jesus Christ. God honored Ruth's sacrifice by putting her in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, the very first words of the gospel, we're given the genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogies are traditionally written in the male name to show the purity of the Jewish line. But the one in Matthew, the lineage of Jesus, is different. 
Three women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and Ruth is one of them. Chapter four in the book of Ruth is the story of redemption. It's the story of a God who restores. It's the story of a God who brings new life. When Ruth was scrabbling around in the corn, hot, dirty, tired, do you ever think she thought she would end up named in the family line of the Messiah? But that's what God does. He redeems, he restores, he makes all things new. He did it then and he still does it now. The truth is that sometimes takes time. Ruth didn't see redemption straight away. And often, truth is, it takes longer than we would like it to, particularly when it involves the healing of wounds, the healing of relationships, re-establishing new habits or patterns of thoughts. That's been my one. But God's timing is perfect. Many years ago, I felt very stuck in a very tricky situation, and it had been a long time. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly through a prophecy from the book of Joel. And he said to me, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. That's in Joel 2. And he has. He really has. There has been huge restoration in my life and particularly of some relationships. But to be honest, I thought that word had had its day. I thought that it was a one-off promise. But in these past few months, he has reminded me that that word doesn't have an expiry date. He will continue to restore to me the years the locusts have eaten. And I bring those words from Joel here today. I speak them boldly and confidently to those of you who need to know God's restoration for family, for an ongoing situation, for difficult circumstances. For those of you who feel like Ruth scrabbling around in the corn, he says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. He is a God who restores. He is a faithful and good God. The Lord has been speaking to me on this theme of restoration through my garden. Now, the irony of what I'm about to tell you is for many years, I spent a lot of time in garden centers and I hated it. It was part of a responsibility that I carried and that's fine, but I did not want to be spending my weekends in the garden center with the middle-aged. Well, now I'm approaching middle age and I have my own garden and I love a garden center. There is nowhere I would rather spend my day off than having a little browse in the garden center. Doesn't the Lord have the most wonderful sense of humor? Anyway. I don't know whether you were here last, a few weeks ago and heard Kate speak and she was talking about a, a garden renovation that she'd done and she was particularly talking about a tree that she'd planted. I realize um, what I'm about to do makes me look horribly competitive and I promise you that is not what's going on here, but I'm now going to show you a picture of a garden renovation that I have done. So, upcoming here are a couple of pictures of the garden that we inherited um, a couple of years ago. And these pictures were, there's two pictures, um, these pictures were taken in January, so it looks particularly bad. There literally wasn't a leaf on a tree. Um, but this is what we inherited. And now I'm going to show you my garden as it was a few weeks ago. I have to say I'm very grateful for Stephen396, who's exceptional at DIY. <laughs> Now, it's very easy to look at these pictures, but actually, I was looking at these pictures the other day thinking it is actually a beautiful example of restoration. When I first saw those first pictures, when I first saw our garden that we inherited, I just thought, what a mess. Where do I even begin? 
The grass isn't grass, it's weeds. Nothing is flourishing here. The roots go so deep, we had to get a digger in and they literally took out like seven or eight massive root balls. And getting to that end point was really hard work. It's easy to see it on a picture, but actually it was physical hard work. It was tiring. And I'm certainly banned from suggesting any more DIY ideas ever. <laughs> but it was absolutely worth it. We've loved sitting in our garden this summer. We've loved having our friends and family over to enjoy that space with us. And actually, life has come back to our garden. There's loads of little birds and animals have now come to live in our garden. Life has come back. It is fully restored. It didn't happen easily. And we don't want to hear that bit about it taking time. But actually, what I love when I look at my garden is it's now better than it was before. Actually, we didn't just restore it to what the previous owners had done, but we transformed it. We didn't just return it to what it was like when we got it, but in my opinion, it's even better. And like the journey of healing that I've been on, what I realize is that I don't just see restoration, I now see transformation. Like what I've seen in my garden, he is a God who brings new life. He is a God who causes things to flourish, and he doesn't just take them back to what they were like before, but he makes them even better. He's a God of restoration, he's a God of transformation, and he brings us that truth through the story of Ruth today. As I finish... I want to quickly come back to a verse that we read earlier, and it stuck out to me a fresh way when I was reading it recently. I'd never really noticed it before. And it's what Boaz says to Ruth when he first meets her in chapter two. So this is chapter two, verse 11. Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And the line that stuck out to me was that last one, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I'd never really noticed it before, but there is huge significance in what Boaz is commending Ruth for here. In her decision to follow Naomi, Ruth also puts her trust and her faith in Jehovah, the God of Naomi. And she learns that under his wing, we find shelter. And I would suggest that one of the reasons that Ruth finds favor and ultimately redemption is she puts her faith in the Lord. That final line there that we read from the book of Ruth reminds me of a beautiful Psalm 91. Psalm 91 has become a very precious verse to me recently. And it says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And that verse reminds me of this image that I absolutely love. Takes a minute to see it. It's such a beautiful image of the way that the Lord tucks us away. He hides us under his feathers. He protects us. 
I also love in this psalm the word dwell, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Because of course, to dwell is to take time. It's to linger. It's not a quick, I'll pop in, but I don't have much time. But this, invert, this verse encourages us to dwell, to linger, to spend time in his presence. When our thoughts are consuming, we let them linger on the God of creation. When our worries are overwhelming, we find rest in his shadow. Four times in this psalm, God gives us a picture of protection, shadow, shelter, fortress, refuge. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere so windy that you've had to seek out shelter. Maybe you've been walking to a beach on a windy day or up a hill or a mountain and you can barely put one foot in front of the other. But then you find a wall or a crevice or a beach hut and you can hide behind it and suddenly it goes quiet and you breathe out. That's the picture of what God does for us. He is our shelter in our storm. So we call on the name of the Lord. We make him our fortress, our shelter. We find rest under the shadow of his wing. Maybe today you feel like Ruth scrabbling around in the corn. Know that you will look back and see his as it turned out moments. Know that right now he wants to bring you the blessing of his presence. And know that he is a God who restores and transforms. Let's all take the step of making the Lord our dwelling place. Let's tuck ourselves under the shadow of his wing where we find rest for our souls and peace in his promises. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Amen.